Uh, well, I just want to give you a big welcome again. Uh, as I look out, there's, there's many here from uh, regulars, but many here who are guests who are from across the UK and beyond. Uh, but it turns out, it turns out that uh, the UK has spoken. The UK has spoken. The results are in. Uh, and it has spoken on what is the most attractive accent in the UK, the most attractive accent in the UK. I wonder what you could guess. Uh, there's a, a school called the Language Gallery. They're a, they're a language school, and they've done a survey. They've interviewed over nearly 10,000 people in across the UK and asked them what's their favourite accent uh, of the local dialects that we've got. Uh, I wonder what you think. What's what are the top three? Anyone wants to shout out what you think the top three is? Welsh, Welsh. <laughs> Balamina didn't get specified. Okay, we'll come to Balamina in a moment. Welsh was one. Number two, Welsh. Okay. Irish, number one. No surprises there, I would suggest. Irish, number one. A surprising number three for me, Geordie. Geordie accent, number three. Any Geordies? No, but someone who spent a bit of time there. Okay. What do you think was, uh, of the top ten, what do you think came tenth? Anyone? Brummy. Sorry, Brummies, if you're a Brummy here. Uh, number 10. Why, well, look, why am I talking about accents? Why is that important? Well, I think when, when I read this story, when I read this story, what stands out to me uh, is that at the beginning of this story, we read that these followers of Jesus began to speak in other languages. But what, what, what really stands out was that without knowing them, everybody knew where they were from. Everybody knew where they were from. They were, from their accent, everyone could tell that they were broad, country bumpkin northerners, okay? So they were from Galilee. This, this, this all happens in sophisticated Jerusalem. But they were from Galilee. They were northerners. Uh, and so Galilee is the ancient equivalent, I think, of Kalibaki, okay? So you just want to kind of place it in your mind. It's Kalibaki. And so anyone, sorry if you're from Kalibaki, I'm really sorry. Uh, anyone, anyone uh, listening to them would have regarded them, not people from Kalibaki, but them, they would have been regarded as uneducated northern country bumpkins, Okay? And yet, and yet, we read that the, the people who listen to them are amazed. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they ask, this is the crowd, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? This was a big holiday time. There were many people from all over the world who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And yet people hear their own, not just their own language, but their own local dialect being spoken. Uh, and it's not just that they picked up some of the local colloquialisms. Can we go back one slide? I forgot a slide. Local colloquialisms, you know, those local phrases. Uh, if you're not from Northern Ireland, here's, here's a brilliant lesson, right? Not from Northern Ireland. Here's, we have some of these phrases that we use that actually nowhere else in the UK knows what we're on about. Uh, gurnan, what's gurnan mean? Crying, crying. Uh, Buck Egypt, okay. Buckeaties is actually a term of endearment. It's actually spoken to someone you like uh, who's been silly or stupid in some way. You're a buck idiot. Uh, we. You'd think it was small, but actually we use it in all sorts of ways, right? Uh, it often means small, but if you say, do you want a cup of tea? It doesn't mean that there's a big cup of tea and you can, you're now being offered a smaller version of that. Uh, it just means the cup of tea. It often just means the specific thing. Uh, faffin, 
Faffin. Technically, I looked up the Northern Ireland slang dictionary, technically means to look busy, but be inefficient. Uh, I think that's pretty good. To look busy, but be terribly inefficient with your time. Uh, Faffin. Wind your neck in. Wind your neck in. Wise up. Be sensible. Don't be so stupid. Up to high do. Stressed. It means you're anxious or excited uh, about something that lies in the future. Boggin. It needs to be filthy, dirty. Okay. It is not, like, let's be clear, it is not that these guys from Galilee had picked up a few colloquial phrases uh, of some far-flung areas in the ancient world and were, were throwing them into their language. That is not what is going on here in Acts 2. These uneducated men from Galilee who had not been to the University of Jerusalem and done a degree in uh, modern Near Eastern languages, they hadn't done that, Uh, They were speaking languages that they had never heard before and never learned before. And so the people rightly say, what is going on? Amazed and perplexed, the crowd asked one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? Well, Peter then stands up and says in a big long speech, if I can summarize, this is what Peter is saying. He is saying, God has a message for the whole world. God has a message for the whole world. God's message in the past had been focused on one particular group of people, the Jews. But now, God's message is not no longer just focused on the Jews. It is for everybody. From whatever background, whatever culture, it is for you. Uh, and Peter then goes on to explain the message of Christianity. And he summarizes it really helpfully in just three verses. And each verse has a key component of the Christian message. Uh, Jesus really lived. You know it. Jesus really died. You did it. Jesus really rose again. We saw it. That's the Christian message in in a nutshell. And then he tells them how they should respond to that message. Let's go through this really quickly, as fast as we can. First, Jesus really lived. You know it. Verse 22, sentence 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know that Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed a couple of weeks ago in this city, was no ordinary man. You know that. You know that. Uh, They all knew that Jesus made some remarkable claims about himself. Jesus said, for example, I am the bread of life. Um, We all know from songwriters and filmmakers and and, uh, authors and uh, psychologists and theologians that there's a hunger in every one of us, a hunger for significance and meaning and purpose. And Jesus was saying, I am the one, the only one that can satisfy that hunger. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus claimed that he had the power to end death and give life. And for any who came to him, yes, they they would physically die, but death would never be the end for them. A remarkable claim. Claims of a madman, actually, to be honest, when you think about it, except for the fact that he backed up all those claims with miracles and signs 
and wonders. He backed all those claims up by the miraculous things uh, that he did. And look, Jesus had plenty of enemies. Plenty of enemies. There was a whole bunch of religious leaders who were envious of Jesus' popularity and offended by his criticism. And they would have loved to have discounted and discredited his miracles. They would have loved to have said, look, he, he, it's, it's up his sleeve. Uh, it, there's a false bottom in that box. He's using mirrors. But the, the, the wonderful things that Jesus did were not easily discounted like that. Because the blind, he made to see. The deaf, he made to hear. The lame, he made to walk. And only a couple of weeks earlier, in a local town of Jerusalem, he made a dead man, Lazarus, come back to life again. He was able to back up the claims that he did publicly. Jesus' miracles uh, were multiple. They were credible. They were undeniable. And they were public. This is no ordinary man. And everyone in that crowd knew it. And so if you're here this morning, uh, and you're here maybe supporting uh, the candidates who are just about to be baptized, uh, or you're here just because it's Easter Sunday and it seems like a, a nice thing to do, If you are harboring the notion that Jesus of Nazareth is a a figure of fantasy like Gandalf, if you are harboring the notion that Jesus is probably uh, just a figure of myth and legend, the truth has got lost uh, in, in time, like King Arthur, then listen to Peter. Listen to Peter. Jesus really lived. Jesus really lived. And he is speaking at a moment when everything that he's saying is easily verifiable, the witnesses are still alive. This is public truth. Jesus really lived. You know it, and we should know it today. Second element of the Christian faith is that Jesus really died. You did it. Jesus really died. You did it. Peter continues, uh, verse 24. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan uh, and foreknowledge. Uh, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Again, the events of Jesus' death are a matter of public record. It was the talk of the town uh, only a few weeks earlier. Um, This is happening about 50 days after Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Uh, Everybody knew that the religious leaders hated Jesus. They were planning to kill him for, for years, in fact. And they finally got their chance. They bribed one of his followers, Judas, who told them where he was going to be at what time. They arrested him, and on trumped-up charges, they charged him with blasphemy, and they wanted to kill him. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have the authority, so they had to to get Pilate, the local governor, to sign the death warrant. Uh, Pilate wouldn't do it. He was convinced he was innocent. And so they incited a a crowd, a mob of people, uh, to shout, crucify him, kill him, uh, and threaten a riot. Uh, And Pilate, fearing a riot, feeling fearing public disturbance, decided to take the easy way out and had Jesus executed. Marched out of the city, beaten, mocked, and then nailed wrists and feet to a crude Roman cross. And by professionals who were experts in dealing death and motivated to do so, Jesus was killed on that cross. If you want to read about the historical account, you can pick any one of the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, and you can read the details for yourself. But what is shocking here is that Peter says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. You are responsible. 
You are responsible. Now, it's possible that, that some of the people in that crowd that day were part of the mob on the day Jesus was executed. That's perfectly possible. It's the same city. But it's highly unlikely they were all part of the mob. Instead, Peter is saying that in a sense, in a sense, we are all responsible for the death of Jesus. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. And so therefore, if you see yourself in any way as a sinner, then he died for you and you're responsible. Uh, The painter Rembrandt, um, the Dutch master, uh, was commissioned to paint this huge uh, portrait, this huge painting for a wealthy family in Antwerp. Uh, And he worked for for months and, and in fact, years, I think, uh, on this huge crucifixion scene. Uh, And finally, when the painting was delivered to the family, they were shocked and horrified when they looked closely at the painting because members of the crowd who are hurling abuse at Jesus in that painting, he painted with the faces of that wealthy family. Shocking. And so unsurprisingly, they went and they complained. They they wanted it changed. Um, And what Rembrandt said is, look closer. Look closer. Look at the face of the Roman soldier nailing Jesus to the cross. And when they did, they saw a self-portrait of Rembrandt. Do you see what he was saying? He's saying the same thing that Peter is saying. We are all responsible for Jesus being executed on the cross. We are all, uh, as I've said here, uh, it, it was always God's plan for Jesus to die as a substitute for sinners. So if you see yourself as a sinner, uh, which we'll explain in a second, um, therefore, in a sense, we are all responsible for his death. We are all responsible for his death. Sin is a little Bible word that has I in the center. A little word that has I in the center. And that actually is a very good definition of what the Bible means by the word sin. It's to live your life with I and me at the center. And we are all, if we're being totally honest, we are all addicted to selfishness. We can't help it. We're addicted to selfishness. Uh, naturally, we want to use and abuse others if it gets us ahead. Naturally, we ignore and reject God in the world that he has made. We are all sinners. And Peter's point, therefore, is when your heart comes to know that, and you see that that really, that definition really reflects your behavior, then you begin to understand Peter's point. I I'm responsible, in a sense, for Jesus having to die on a cross. Jesus really lived. You know it. Jesus really died. You did it. You're responsible. But thirdly, Jesus really rose again. We saw it. Because the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there wonderfully. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. Um, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I've highlighted the word agony there. Peter chooses a very strange word here. It's the word normally used to describe the, the labor pains. Labor pains. What's Peter, what's Peter getting at? Um, 
Well, I want you to imagine just for a moment uh, a, pregnant, a pregnant woman who is just overdue. She's maybe two weeks overdue or so. And in the middle of the night, the, the labor pains start. She nudges her husband and says, it's coming, it's coming. And so they rush to the maternity ward and they go to the, the reception and they talk to the girl behind the counter. And the girl says, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry, you're not in the book. You're not in the book for today. And if you look around, you see that the, the midwife, we don't have a spare midwife. We don't have a spare doctor. Can I, can I put you in for a week next Tuesday? What do you think the reply would be? No, it is coming now. It is coming now. I cannot, I can't hold it in. I can't hold it in. That's exactly the point Peter's making. Death had a grip on Jesus, but couldn't hold him in. Couldn't hold him in. It was impossible for death to keep its grip on him. Peter is saying, let's be clear. It's not just that Jesus had a near-death experience. He wasn't resuscitated. He experienced the full agony and experience of death. He was dead. Dead, dead. Killed by professionals. Certified dead, dead. And yet after he was dead, he was seen to be alive and well by his followers. Uh, Peter makes two uh, comments about the resurrection of Jesus so that the crowd are absolutely clear. Uh, In sentence number 31 and 32, he says this, he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this. We don't have time to go into all the details this morning, just two things that Peter says I want to point out really quickly. Number one, uh, his body did not see decay. The, The resurrection of Jesus was physical. It was physical. Uh, We're not talking about a metaphor here. I remember reading a a biography of David Bowie, a couple of biographies actually of David Bowie when he he died in in 2016. Uh, And each biography said, or obituary said something like this. Um, he, he, He will live on in the hearts of his fans through his music. Peter is not saying, Jesus will live on in the hearts of his followers through his teaching. No, no, no. He is saying, literally, physically, Jesus was alive and well after he physically died. He was raised to life again. He was raised to life again. And we are witnesses of these things. I was there. I I saw it. I, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. Uh, Luke, who's the writer of this uh, history, early history of the church in Acts, uh, wrote one of the, the biographies of Jesus. And at the very end of the biography, he talks about Jesus appearing in the upper room and Jesus speaking to them, saying, check out my hands and my feet. Touch me. He asked for some food and they gave him some fish and he ate it in front of them all. Jesus was not Casper the friendly ghost. He was real physical, alive and well, resurrected from the dead, resurrected from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was physical. Jesus' resurrection is rational. Jesus' resurrection is rational. Uh, Recently, I I reread a a big chunk of uh, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, and he defines faith like this. Faith, according to Richard Dawkins, is blind trust in the absence of evidence or even in the teeth of evidence. 
So for Richard Dawkins, faith is a leap in the dark, or at worst, believing something you, you pretty much know not to be true. Christi- Christianity never, ever defines faith like that. In the Bible, faith is confidence on the basis of evidence. Confidence on the basis of evidence. I could never be a Christian if I wasn't completely convinced of the compelling nature of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. For for me, as for many, many people in this room, this is a a touchstone, a cornerstone of our faith. And the evidence for the resurrection is, is more like Um, or more akin to legal evidence than mathematical or scientific proof. Faith is not irrational. It is based on the evidence of eyewitnesses. Again, faith is confidence on the basis of evidence. Look, we don't have time to go into it now, but let's just give you a couple of just highlights. What are some of the evidence for the Christian faith? Well, the first thing is the witnesses, those early preachers who stood up, who were who ran away in terror when Jesus was arrested, yet something happened to these guys, that they were absolutely transformed, that they were willing to stand up in front of thousands and tell people uh, about the risen Jesus. And it's one thing to make up a story. It's one thing to make up a story. It's quite another thing to stick to that story under the threat of torture and death. And yet that to a man, that is what these followers did. They stuck to the story, and almost all of them that we knew of were executed or imprisoned for that story. How do you explain the early preachers and the change? How do you explain the empty tomb? The tomb was empty. They saw where he was buried, and yet three days later, they went, and it was empty. Stone was rolled away, and the only thing of any value in the tomb, the grave clothes, was left. How do you explain that? Um... You have the extensive appearances. On at least 12 occasions, we're told that Jesus appeared to followers at different times and different places. Uh, He ate with them. He taught them. He walked with them. And on one occasion, Paul writes in a letter to a church in Corinth only about 16 years after the resurrection of Jesus when these things could easily be verified was happy to say he appeared, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. We've got loads of eyewitnesses who have nothing to gain by sticking to the story and, in fact, everything to lose. Jesus really rose again. We saw it. And we should believe it. What's the response to this? What's the response? Well, first thing... Peter gets to uh, the end of his speech and he gives two two things that we are to be aware of, two responses we're to have. We're to be warned and we're to receive the offer. There's a warning and an offer. The warning, God, verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. There is no alternative, Peter is saying, For each and every one of us will stand before King Jesus and have to give an answer for the way we've lived our lives. The resurrection proves that. There is a warning that we all need to be aware of this morning. And then secondly, there's an offer that we're all been given that we should receive. Verse 38, the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died on the cross to bear the penalty 
for all our wrongdoing, for all our disobedience, for all our selfishness, for all our pride, for all our pettiness and greed. He died for it all. And if we come to him and admit our guilt, ask for his forgiveness, we will receive that forgiveness, complete, total, and be given the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we'll begin to change. You've heard about the change he can bring in the lives of Anna and Peter already. We are to, how do we get this? How do we get this forgiveness? How do we get the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, Peter says, you're to repent and be baptized. To repent. Repent in the Bible doesn't just mean to say you're sorry. Um, it means more than that. It actually means to say to God, you are right about everything. I'm wrong about everything. That's what it means. And if you were to judge me, you'd be perfectly right to do that. And that's what's symbolized in baptism. In, in the Bible, going underwater is always bad, right, in the Bible. You don't want to ever go underwater in the Bible. I think Noah, think uh, Noah and the ark, think the Egyptians and the Red Sea, think Jonah. It's always a judgment to go under the water. And when these candidates go under the water, what they are saying publicly is we deserve it. We deserve God's punishment. We're not perfect. We've got it all wrong different times and different ways. But wonderfully, the second step, they repent and they are baptized. Baptism is a picture of of surrender, a picture of trust. Uh, Guys, you will not be under the water for more than one second, right? I promise, not more than one second. Because baptism is a picture that they are pulled out from that place of judgment to life by a power not their own by a power not their own. They're totally trusting to me in that instance, but it's a picture of their total trust in God. And that's what has been symbolized as they go down into that, uh, that bath and get a bath with their clothes on in public. And so he, this is the response for all of us. The response for all of us. Here's the Christian message. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose again. And it really matters. It really matters. It matters for your past. It matters for your present. And it will transform your future. Let me pray.